We're singing about happy in the service of the king. And tonight we're going to look at rejoicing in our wonderful Lord. Psalms chapter 9. I'm going to read the first ten verses where it says, I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou most high. When mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou sattest in thy throne judging right. Thou hast rebuked the heathen, thou hast destroyed the wicked, thou hast put out their name forever and ever. O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end, and thou hast destroyed cities, their memorial is perished with them. But the Lord shall endure forever, he hath prepared his throne for judgment, he shall judge the world in righteousness, he shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed a refuge in times of trouble. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity we have to open thy precious word tonight. Thank you for this um, middle of the week we can come apart and to sing praises unto thy name and to study your word. And I pray as we look into the word of God tonight that we be encouraged and challenged and strengthened in our walk with you. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We think about our rejoicing on our wonderful Lord. Uh, so verse 1 says, I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. And, of course, we think about the word marvelous means to be wonderful. Or things wonderfully done. Talking, of course, about his works. Remember in Genesis 1.31, the Lord said, And God saw the, everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So everything that God made was very good. Whatever God does is good. He, everything he does is good. We have a wonderful God. Now, I want to notice some things about our wonderful God, and we're going to contrast a little bit with the false gods of the world. First of all, we have a God that we can approach him without reservation. Notice again in verse 1, it says, I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. I can praise thee with the whole, my whole heart, without reservation, without fear. As I think about that, there's three things I want to notice here. First of all, our God is good. You know, we can approach God without reservation because we know that our God is good. You remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why callest thou me good? There is one good, and that is God. Now, I 
don't think the Lord says things just to, you know, just for verbiage, like sometimes we do, just to make make uh, communication. No, he. I, I think he was pointing out to this rich young ruler who we know from the rest of the encounter thought he was good, that he wasn't good, that only God's good. The psalmist said in Psalm eighty four eleven, "For the Lord is a sun and a shield; the Lord will give grace and glory." No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Psalm 100, verse 5. The Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endureth to all generations. Matthew 5, verses 44 and 45 says, But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. You see, God is good to all. God is good to all. So we can approach him without reservation because our God, we, we, we know that our God is good. Secondly, he delights. He delights in our rejoicing in him. Notice again in verse 2. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name. O thou most high. He is, of course, the most high. But our God delights in rejoicing, in gladness. <coughs> Excuse me. I'll look at, a few, look at a few psalms here. Psalm 4 and verse 7 says, Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than the time that their corn and their wheat and their wine increase. So the gladness came from the Lord. It was more than having abundance of things. It was greater than that kind of gladness that God gave. Psalm 30, verse 11. Psalm 30, verse 11. Says, I was, I'm sorry, Psalm 11, uh, verse 11, Psalm 30, 11. Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. The idea, of it, of course, girded means, you know, or clothed with gladness. Psalm 32, verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Uh, 33, 1. Rejoice in the Lord, all ye righteous, for praise is comely. That means it's fitting or proper for the upright. Uh, so, uh, Psalm 45 and verse 7. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Uh, righteousness brings, brings joy. Uh, Psalm 51, verse 8. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. You know, David had lost his joy because of his sin, but he was here, he's confessing his sin, and he says, make me hear that joy and gladness that I once heard. That I once knew in my life before I committed this iniquity. Then Psalm 58, verse 10. Psalm 58, verse 10 says, The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Uh, Psalm 68 and verse 3. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yet them be, let them exceedingly rejoice. Uh, Psalm 97, verses 11 through 12, 11 and 12. 
<clears throat> excuse me. Psalm 97, verse 11 and 12 says, Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Uh, 100, verse 2. Know ye the Lord, he is God. Is he that made us and not we ourselves? I'm sorry. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. <coughs> Excuse me. And then 106 and verse 5 says, That I may see the good of thy chosen, that I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation, that I may glory with thine inheritance. Uh, Psalm 22, <coughs> excuse me, Psalm 122 verse 1 says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Of course, Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You know, Nehemiah had gathered all the people. In Ezra, the ready scribe, had preached uh, the law of God and made the sense thereof and interpreted it for made the application. And because of their sin, they would start, they had begun to mourn. And he told them to weep not. Let this be a day of gladness. A day of gladness. Um, the joy of the Lord is your strength. See, God delights in rejoicing. God, our God delights in gladness. Compare that with the religions of the world. Well, see that a little bit. But, but our God is good. He delights in rejoicing. Thirdly, <clears throat> we can have confidence in him. Excuse me. Notice verse 2 and verse 4. <coughs> Excuse me. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou most high. Then verse 4 says, For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou sattest in, thy, in the throne judging right. Thou hast maintained my cause, my right and my cause. So we can have confidence in our God. The word maintain means to observe or to attend to, to advance, sustain. And it says here that thou hast maintained my right and my cause. You know, he is, you know, think about it, 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 as our God, he is referred to here as the most high. That's a phrase that's used in several places in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, uh, particularly in Daniel. It means the supreme one. Uh, when Daniel was interpreting dreams to, to, to uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he said, the Most High hath revealed this unto thee. The Most High. Of course, Babylon was full of false gods. It's permeated with false gods. And Daniel's reminded him that the Most High, or the Supreme God, really the only God, hath revealed this unto thee, and that Most High is going to dethrone thee from thy throne. And then later on, in Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, he says that the Most High ruleth in the affairs of men. In chapter 5, he goes on when Belshazzar, his grandson, was king, and that handwriting appeared on a wall. Daniel again reminds him that the Most High God revealed himself to your grandfather, and he took away his throne for a time. 
And he reminded him that Belshazzar that it's in this God that that our breath is in his hand and all our ways are before him. So our God, you know, we can have confidence in him because our breath is in his hand and all our ways are before him. And if we walk with the Lord, he will maintain or he will observe and he will attend to it and he will sustain our way, our right, and our cause. He is the righteous judge. He is, and we can depend upon him that he is consistent. He does not change. Notice again verse 4, it says, For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou sattest in thy throne, judging right. You can count on the fact that God will always do what is right. John 7 Jesus told his disciples in verse 24, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And when Abraham was interceding for Lot before the Lord, and in Genesis 18, 25, he says, that be far from thee to do after this manner to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul writing to young Timothy said, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Go to Job chapter 23 for just a minute. Job chapter 23. And this was Job's contention that no matter what, God would do what was right. In Job 23, verses 1 through 12, it says, Then Job answered and said, Even today is my complaint bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me. Notice, I would know the words which he would answer me. And understand what he would say unto me. Will he plead against me with his great power? No, but he would put strength in me. There the righteous might dispute with him, so should I be delivered forever from my judge. <coughs> Excuse me, behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand that I cannot see him, but he knoweth the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary, necessary food. Job, notice, notice particularly verse 5. Job says, I would know the words which he would answer me. Now how could he know that? Because God is consistent with himself. And we can know what God would answer. We can have confidence in that God is going and God is going to keep his word. You know, the, Job's three friends were saying that the cause of Job's trouble was that he had sinned, that he was a hypocrite. And Job's contention was, no, I'm not. 
I haven't taken from the widows. I haven't taken from the fatherless. I've fed the fatherless. I've taken care of the widows. I haven't done all these things that you're saying. I'm not guilty of that. This isn't because of my sin or my wickedness, my troubles. He said, I don't know why, but it isn't because of that. And so he says, what he's saying is, I know what God would answer in this case. In fact, God had already declared in chapter 1, Job's condition. He was a righteous man, one that feared God and skewed evil. And so Job said, I know what God would answer me. Because I've esteemed his word more than my necessary food. Because my God is consistent with what he says. I have his word on it. Hallelujah. <laughs> now, so we, can, we have a God who's good. He delights in our rejoicing. He wants us to be rejoicing. We can have confidence in him because he is consistent. Compare that with the gods of the world. God of Moloch or Baal. To Moloch, they sacrifice children. To Baal, they cut themselves. You know, associate, you know, what is associated with those kind of gods is pain and suffering. Misery. Some of the eastern religions of the world in India, up until not too long ago, you had twins. One of them was sacrificed to the gods, thrown into the river of crocodiles. Because to have twins was a curse. Or if your husband died, you might be burned alive with his dead, rotting corpse. That was just outlawed in the late 1800s. If you serve Allah, you might be asked to give your life in suicide. It's not martyrdom. Martyrs don't run to death. They run away from it. Their life is taken from them. You know, these suicide bombers run to death. They're committing suicide. That's what Allah. Can you imagine having an, a God that wants you to commit to take your own life? They don't claim to have a personal loving God. That's Allah. You can make your pilgrimage to Mecca every so often, or you can go to Catholicism, or you may have to do penance, pay for mass, do the southern sacraments, and still not have assurance of eternal life. You know, works-based religions can never guarantee you any assurance of salvation. Because you can never know for sure if your works are good enough. You know, you can give more money or crawl on your knees to the Virgin of Guadalupe. That's the, uh, that's the shrine in Mexico that was supposedly uh, appeared in the, in the uh, 1500s to an Indian peasant. He saw this vision of the virgin who told him to build a church. 
It went to the bishop, and the bishop unimpressed and demanded proof that the vision was real. So Juan Diego wasn't sure what to do about it, but three days later, the, vigi- vision, the virgin reappeared and told him to gather roses on the hillside and bring them to the bishop. Sure enough, the roses were there, so he gathered them in his cape, took them to the bishop. When he dropped his cape to deliver the flowers, a perfect image of the virgin was there, imprinted on his tunic. That original image can still be seen in the Basilica of Guadalupe near Mexico City. It is the most revered figure in Mexican Catholicism. I believe that about as much as I believe the angel God gave Joseph Smith the word of God in golden plates. But some people will even crawl down the long uh, road or path on their knees as a way of giving thanks for prayers answered. You know, the cobbled stones are rough, and it must hurt tremendously by the time they're water. And, and, you know, but um, most people crawling have a rosary in one hand. They pray the entire time. They crawl toward the church. Many people are grimacing as they crawl, but most are very focused and serene. Now, one priest said without embarrassment, this is on a YouTube clip, that it is a, quote, bargaining chip, unquote, used to get special favors. Why not use a rabbit's foot? It'd be a lot easier. But the sad truth is, they never have assurance of salvation. And they still live in fear. They still live in fear. Fear of death. Because they can't have certainty of salvation because there's no consistency in their worship. But, you know, we can bring that closer home. Calvinists who believe in the sovereignty of God and then turn around and say that God decreed sin. That's not very, that doesn't sound like a good God. Of course, unless you're the elect, then I guess you're okay, and then I guess it don't matter. I don't know. But 2 Timothy, the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance, I'll stir up the gift of God which is in thee, but putting on my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Go over to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. <coughs> 1 John chapter 4. See, our God is good. He is Delights in our rejoicing, and we can have confidence in his consistency uh, that he will maintain our cause. But in 1 John chapter 4, we see in verses uh, 11 through 19, it says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. 
Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect, perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. You see, we, because we believe in the Lord and his, his love dwelleth in us, we don't need to have fear. We don't need to live in fear. The Bible says perfect love casteth out fear. Now, the word perfect means, of course, in the Bible, complete or mature. How do you get perfect love? Verse 16, and we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. It's by believing, continually believing in, the, in God's love for us. You know, the gods of this world, they hold over their subjects. That's what they are, their subjects. You know, Jesus didn't call us, doesn't call us subjects. Our Heavenly Father doesn't call us subjects. He doesn't even call us servants. That's the term we use. He calls us saints. He calls us brethren. He calls us brethren. See, we're above servants. He's exalted us above servants. We don't have a fear relationship, or we should not. We should have a love relationship. Love relationship. And perfect love. When we're secure in his love, we will not have fear. We'll not be afraid of him. We can have boldness in the day of judgment. First John 5, 3, he says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. You know, we don't have a God that's, that's expecting hard and difficult and and, you know, we have to crawl on our knees and we have to do certain things and, and we have to die for him. I mean, commit suicide. We, are, we, we, will, we do die for him. We live for him. But it's willingly, gladly. After all, our God knows what's best for us. Do you ever read in the Bible where any of God's servants, his children, at the end of their life said, I wish I never served the Lord? It isn't there. Oh, they had troubles. They had trials. 
You know, Abraham had his problems. He had his trials. He had his tests. But the Bible says he died and gave up the ghost, being full of days. He died at peace with God, rejoicing. See, we have a good God. Deuteronomy 32.4 says this. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. Isaiah 45.21 says, Tell ye, and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me. A just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. You see, there's no other God that can say, I'm a just God and a Savior. See, our Savior lives. Theirs are all dead. Or... They're not even saviors because they're dead. Notice also, our God is also an enduring judge. <coughs> Excuse me. I notice a couple things here. First of all, he judges the wicked continually. Notice verses 5 and 6. Thou hast rebuked the heathen. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast put out their name forever and ever. O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end, and thou hast destroyed cities, their memorial is perished with them. Notice he says that their destructions are come to a perpetual end. In other words, they're ending continually. Go to Ezekiel for just a minute. Ezekiel 35. Ezekiel chapter 35. It'll help us with this a little bit. Ezekiel 35 and verse 5. Ezekiel 35, 5. Let's let's start in verse 1 to get the context here. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Mount Seir and prophesy against him. Of course, Mount Seir is basically Esau. Uh, and say unto it, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against thee, and will stretch out mine hand against thee, and I will make thee most desolate. I will lay thy cities waste, and thou shalt be desolate, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord, because thou hast a perpetual hatred, and hast shed the blood of the children of Israel by the force of the sword in the time of their calamity, in the time that their iniquity had an end. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord God, I will repair thee unto blood. And blood shall pursue thee, seeth thou hast not hated blood. Even blood shall pursue thee. Thus will I make mine seer most desolate, and cut off from it him that passeth out, and him that returneth. And I fill his mountains with the slain men. In thy hills, and in thy valleys, and in all thy rivers shall they fall, that are slain with a sword. I will make thee perpetual desolations, and thy city shall not return. And ye shall know that I am the Lord. Of course, you know, uh, Seir, Seir is, of course, Esau, and, of course, Esau had married daughters of Mishmael. So we would say the modern Arab, Arabs, 
but particularly those who dwelled in, in Edom. And, uh, and God said they had a perpetual hate. Of course, they were relatives of Israel. And this is referring to a time that, that Israel was taken captive, I think, by the Syrians. And they uh, took advantage of their calamity and their weakness and attacked the, those that escaped the Assyrians. And he said, you had a perpetual, you have a perpetual hatred, an unending hatred. You're down through the centuries there of those that have had an unending hatred. And it's still going. It's still on today. There's an unending hatred for Israel, God's chosen people. But these were all, they continually come to an end. You know, you would think that these people wise up one day and realize, you know what? Everybody that's going against Israel is not. <laughs> Duh. Look at uh, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel here <clears throat> kind of makes reference to this fact that they rise up and they go away. Daniel 7, verse 24. A lot of this is referring to the same people, as we'll see here. But Daniel 7, 24 says, And the ten kings, and the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall rise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall do three kings. By the way, I think this is still yet future. And he shall speak against great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, Think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and, and times and the dividing time. It's talking about the tribulation, actually. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So this is going to be this one speak against the Most High. He's going to wear out the saints. He's going to be consumed. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11. I'll read all these for sake of time, but we see illustrations of this very thing here. Chapter 11, verse 21. says, And in this state shall stand up a vile person, to whom they shall not give honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Go to verse 36. And the king shall do according to his will, and shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, shall speak marvelous things against the god of the... God of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. Now look at verse 45. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Notice, yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. See, all these have come against Israel, are not. Where's the power of Egypt? Or Babylon? You know, we are told, historians believe, that Nebuchadnezzar built his hanging gardens. But I'm not sure. A lot of speculation. You know why? Because it is not. His memorial is perished. It's gone. 
Rome. Where are they? Where's Hitler? Oh, we remember him, but it certainly isn't a name memorial. There isn't something to be honored about. Or Mussolini, or Stalin, or Saddam Hussein, or the Ayatollah Khomeini, who wanted, he was the, one of the religious Islamic leaders of Iran a few days back. He's dead and gone. Roman Catholicism with their replacement theology. You know, God says, these enemies, the destructions are come to a perpetual end. They're continually being destroyed. And the memorial of the wicked will perish. You notice in verse, the end of verse 6 says their memorial is perished with them. Uh, in fact, look, look at, go back to verse uh, 3. It says, when mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. <coughs> kind of reminds me of what it says over in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, where it says, I saw a great throne. And judge... And... and, and and he that sat upon it, from whose face the heavens and the earth fled away. They fled away. They tried to get away. Revelation 19 says he's going to destroy his enemies with the word of his mouth. See, the moral of the wicked will perish, but the righteous... But notice verse 7, But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment... He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge of the oppressed, for the oppressed, a refuge in triumph of trouble. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. The moral of the wicked will perish, but the memorial righteous will be remembered. You know, Job said, Job 24, 19 and 20, Drought and heat consume the snow waters, so doth the grave those which have sinned. The womb shall forget him, the worm shall feed sweetly on him, he shall be no more remembered, and the wickedness shall be broken as a tree. He's talking about the wicked. Just like heat consumes snow, grave will consume those that sin and the womb will forget them they'll be no more remembered but the righteous we're chapter 37 chapter 37 verse 18 chapter 37 verse 18 says, The Lord knoweth the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. Verse 25. I have been young, and now I'm old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. He is ever merciful, and lendeth, and his seed is blessed. Depart from evil, and do good, and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loveth judgment, and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. 
Psalm 112, verse 6 says, Surely he shall not be moved forever. The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. You know, it's interesting to me that you take Bible-believing people, even in the Bible, like Abraham, who is literally, clearly, the promises made to Abraham of the land were given to Isaac. But who else claims them? The Arabs do. All you have to do is read the Bible. You know that's not true. But you can come up to, since Bible times, what do one of the holidays Catholics celebrate every year? It's called St. Patrick's Day. Who is Patrick? He was not Catholic. He was a Bible-believing Christian. Do you know, all these false religions like to take characters from history who have a good memorial and try to make them part. That's what Islam does. Catholics do it. No, you see, the moral of the wicked is going to perish. And the righteous will be in everlasting remembrance because we have a God who is everlasting. And he will maintain our cause oh we have a wonderful lord compare our god with the gods of the world and you don't have to come to the conclusion if you rightly understand the god of the bible that we have a wonderful god we have a wonderful god a god that cares about our every need a god who is personable who's interested in us as individuals. A God that we can get close to. A God that we can share our burdens and our cares with. And a God that reveals himself to us through his word. And we can have assurance because he is consistent. He does not change. And so we can know with certainty that we have assurance of life and life everlasting. May God help us to rejoice in our wonderful Lord. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the time of your word tonight. Thank you for the encouragement that we receive from it. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us in our walk with you just to rejoice in your goodness, to be a testimony, a light, to a world that doesn't understand or know. So Lord, just help us. Give us grace and strength day by day. Help us keep our eyes focused on thee. And allow you to work. Maintain our cause. We do pray in Jesus' name.